Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Changes. My name is Annie McManus. Hope you're doing good. Hope you've had a good week. On Changes this week, we are taking on the rather huge subject of gender inequality. There are so many things about living as a woman that remain deeply unfair, be it long toilet queues, unaffordable childcare, being unsafe on public transport, sexual harassment, lack of medical research on women's health, period poverty. The list goes on and on. And in light of the new surge of conversations about women's safety, post Sarah Everard and Sabina Ness's horrific deaths, I thought it would be pertinent to speak to someone who can talk to me about the cold, hard facts of how the world works for women in society today. Caroline Criado Perez's superpower is her obsession with data, or in the case of her book, Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men, her obsession is a relentless lack of data when it comes to women's lives, and how that leads to a world designed by men, for men. We're talking everything from seatbelts to pensions to town planning to bathroom design. So much of our infrastructure is biased towards the default male. The book, when you read it, is incredibly eye-opening, depressing, frustrating and anger-inducing. But what counteracts the frustration is learning about Caroline's personal activism. Her story of becoming a feminist is really interesting and her actions in becoming one are nothing short of inspirational. Caroline backs every thought up with meticulously researched data. It is impossible not to come away from reading her books or hearing her talk without feeling angry and motivated to change the world. I wanted to ask her some really big questions. How do we make the world a fairer place for women to live? What are the recurring barriers for us in that? Is there a simple fix? What can we do to individually make a change? Caroline believes deeply in change. She's dedicated her life's work to it. And I started the conversation with a quote from her book. Um, I'm going to start with a quote uh, that comes at the end of the introduction of your book. It says, at heart, invisible women is a call for change. For too long, we have positioned women as a deviation from standard humanity. And this is why they've been allowed to become invisible. It's time for a change in perspective. It's time for women to be seen. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you some basic questions at the start, just for the sake of those people who haven't read your book. Can you break down how women are invisible in our society? Yeah, so Invisible Women is basically about two things. One is the gender data gap and the other is what I call default male. And the gender data gap is a product of default male and it is basically the term for the fact that the vast majority of information, data that we've collected historically and continue to collect all around the world, everything from economic data to urban planning data, to car safety data, to workplace data, to medical data, has been collected almost exclusively in men. And the result of this is that pretty much everything in the world from the car you drive to the medical treatment you receive to the place that you work in 
has been designed mainly to work for men. And the result of that is that most things in the world just don't work that well for women. And default male comes into it basically as my explanation for how this has been able to happen, which is not that women don't exist or that we don't know women exist, but because we have this bias where we think of men as somehow gender neutral, as somehow representative of the entire human species, as like the almost like the basic model of humanity is male. And then female is like this weird niche aberration that is male plus or minus a few critical factors, which obviously is not actually the way the world works. You know, men represent about half and women represent about half and female bodies are not just the male body with some bits tacked on and taken away. But but because that's how we think. And generally, when we think we're speaking gender neutrally, we're usually actually speaking about men. But because that sort of facade of speaking gender neutrally exists, it it enables us to not realise that we're not speaking about women and to not realise that we're not collecting data on women. So that's basically what the book is about and the, the, the way that women are invisible as a result of this kind of false gender neutrality. When the book came out a couple of years ago, what was the reaction to it? Um, much more positive than I'd expected. (laughs) Mm. Um, I'd been really nervous when I was writing the book that it would just make people angry. And part of the reason for that came from very early on in my research. I was asked to speak at the launch of the Women's Health All-Party Parliamentary Group. And I went and I gave this very short little speech saying things that were really very uncontentious, like that women are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed if they have a heart attack, that the vast majority of medical trials have been done mainly in men. And so there are all sorts of medicines that we don't really know the effects on women as well as men and various diseases. We're not as good as spotting in women as in men, you know, and this is all very well established research. And so I wasn't expecting a negative reaction, but there were all these doctors in the room who just looked furious with me (laughs) and just lots of crossed arms and these sort of closed faces and it it really shocked me and and you know perhaps naively you know I'd I'd always sort of put scientists up on a pedestal as being just better than the rest of us like more objective less biased you know because they deal in facts and data and that means that they're good people and they listen to facts (laughs) and data and so to see actual scientists standing there being angry with me and feeling defensive about what I was saying that wasn't even, you know, new research that I'd sort of plucked out of the ether. Mm. It was well-established things. We've known for a really long time that women are more likely to die following a heart attack because of being more likely to be misdiagnosed. And so that made me feel very nervous when I was writing the book that people were going to react defensively rather than to think, actually, this is a really shocking systematic problem and we need to do something about it and so I was actually really pleasantly surprised that that was generally the reaction that people just sort of were really shocked (laughs) to to hear all these statistics that I talk about about the serious impacts on on women's lives on women's health on women's bodies of the way that we ignore women's lives women's health and women's bodies when we're designing the world and that there seemed a real desire to actually do something about it and that was that was amazing. And what parts of the book did people find the most shocking? Like what came up again and again where mm. people were like, I cannot believe this? Um, 
There's a few. Definitely the car crash safety statistics is an example that people often cite. And I understand why, because it is, I mean, it is very shocking, but it also is a very good sort of encapsulation of the whole problem. Like it's a very simple representation of how you get from thinking of men as if they represent humanity as a whole and end up with women dying. So what that is, is that the most commonly used car crash test dummy is literally based on the body of an average man. So the standard dummy representative of standard humanity is literally a man. (laughs) And the result of that is that there are all sorts of ways that cars just aren't designed to be as safe for the average woman, who after all is on average shorter, on average lighter. And there are other differences like muscle mass distribution. So men tend to carry more muscle mass in their upper bodies, you know, differences in spinal column, differences in hips. None of this is accounted for. And so there are all sorts of ways that the car is not optimized for female safety. So, for example, women tend to sit further forward when they're driving because of being on average shorter. That's, you know, important to like reach the pedals and see over the dashboard. But that puts them at a higher risk in the event of a frontal collision because it moves them outside of what's called the standard seating position, which is designed around where the average male car crash test dummy would sit. You've got things like seat belts, which have never been designed for being rooted around breast tissue or for being safe for use during pregnancy. An interesting one is the the seat backs being too firm, which sounds kind of ridiculous, but it's not about comfort. It's about the fact that the seat back firmness has been determined based on the weight of this average male car crash test dummy. And the idea is it's meant to absorb this quite heavy body. But because the female body on average is lighter, she gets thrown further forward in the event of a collision. And let's bear in mind, she's already sitting further forward. And there's a whole host of other design issues, but essentially they all come together to mean that in the event of a crash, a woman is 47% more likely to be seriously injured and 17% more likely to die than a man in the same car crash. And there is, I should say, what is called a female car crash test dummy, but it's basically just a very scaled down version of the male dummy. So it only accounts for things like weight and height and all the other differences. But even more importantly, it's very rarely used. So for example, Mm. in the EU regulatory tests, as she's only used in one out of the five tests and only in the passenger seat. So even where we have this so-called female car crash test dummy, she's not even being used 50% of the time. So that is something that I think people have picked up on a lot. A, because it's so shocking. Most people have no idea that cars are less safe for women and so much dramatically less safe. Mm. You know, it's just a thing that we get in every day and we assume that it will have been tested in men and in women. But also of the way that it's just so blatant, this representation of humanity as male. So that's definitely one of the examples that often gets cited. People are often also very angry, and I would argue quite rightly, about the medical data and how much medical research has prioritised the male body, meaning that in all sorts of ways, women get less effective treatment, take longer to diagnose, and also that diseases that are more likely to affect women are generally much less researched than Mm. diseases that uh, affect men and women. Mm. Has this book, since you've wrote it two years ago, has anything changed, you know, on account of this book being written? Like, have you seen any direct change being affected? So I've definitely had a lot of people get in touch to tell me about changes that they have made as a result of the book. And they... They range from, for example, um, two women 
read the book and as a result set up a charity called Make Space for Girls. And that's as a result of the section in the book where I talk about public space and the research showing that the sort of youth provision that most urban spaces provide is geared towards boys and girls just aren't using it and the knock-on impact of girls' health, both mental and, and physical. And as a result of reading this, they have set up this charity where they're just going around and challenging basically all the local councils in England to collect the data, to collect sex disaggregated data on who's using their public spaces and then challenge them to do something about it. So that's that's amazing to read. The Scottish Women's Health Plan that came out re- recently, I haven't got direct confirmation that it's as a result of reading the book, but you know they talk a lot about cardiovascular disease and the differential impacts for women. They have talked about setting up a fund specifically to address under-researched diseases that mainly affect women. They talk a lot about collecting sex disaggregated data and they cite my book right at the beginning of the plan. So I'm kind of claiming that one. Yeah, Um, you should claim that one. That's wonderful. (laughs) But then I've had sort of individual researchers getting in touch with me, like one guy got in touch. And I, I really love this one because it shows to me that I'm right to say that this is a bias. You know, this isn't about bad people deliberately excluding women. It's just we really don't notice that we're doing it. And I know this for a fact because, you know, it was how I came into feminism, was seeing it in myself and not having noticed it before, which is a huge shock to me. But anyway, this researcher told me that until he read the book, he had never noticed that when he was being sent data, it always framed male as the default and female as an effect despite the fact that data tends to be presented alphanumerically. So if it's just the way data is normally presented, you would have female as the default and male as the effect. Anyway, so he went and he redid 260 pages of code, having noticed this problem to make female the default and male the effect, i.e. just to order data alphabetically, which I thought was kind of amazing. I've also had people getting in touch with me about how it's changed how they approach their own health and basically refusing to be fobbed off and there was one really shocking story which is doesn't have an exactly happy ending but it's I guess a sort of empowering ending um is this woman who'd been getting these really bad migraines for years and her doctor just kept fobbing her off and sending her off with you know just take some painkillers and after she read the book she went back to the doctor and just refused to be fobbed off. And they finally sent her for tests. And it turned out that part of her frontal lobe of her brain was necrotic, which is indicative of a previous stroke. And they're now sending her off for, you know, further tests. And so it's really great that she is now getting the treatment that she needs. But it's also deeply frustrating to know that there was something that was seriously wrong with her. And Mm. she was for years being fobbed off. And, And the really sad thing is that she's now having to be investigated for kidney damage because of all the painkillers that she was taking to manage this huge pain right. that she was in. But I guess yeah. I, I, you know, I'm glad that the book gave her the confidence to push back against a medical expert and say, no, I'm not actually going to accept that there's nothing wrong with me. I know there's something wrong with me. It's interesting, the idea of confidence. And one of the things I found most powerful about this book is just the very basic level of everything coming through the prism of, of data, like this indisputable weapon that data is. It's so different from all the cliches that women are supposed to be, emotional, hysterical, all of that. It is fact. It is scientific fact. 
And Caroline, I've been angry all week at my husband because I know that I do, I do this extra work and I've always known it and I've known about the mental load and I've talked with Catelyn Moran on this podcast about that. But just when you see the cold, hard facts of the amount of extra work that women do, unpaid work on top of their jobs, it gives you conviction in your anger, in your frustration. I guess it helps women change the way they see themselves. It, it lets them see their existence in a clearer light, the reality of that. How do you feel the book kind of did that to women? Did you did you get a reaction like that from women? You know, you've just reminded me that one woman told me that she and her husband both read the book. And after reading the book, he actually apologised to her because he, it made him realise how much more she did. And it's not like they'd never had this conversation before, but he'd never really accepted it, that she actually was doing more than him. And when he read the book and sort of saw the statistics, he apologised to her. And she was like, look, I'm not going to pretend it's all perfect now and that it's yeah. all shared 50-50. But just the fact that he was acknowledging it, that there was actually an imbalance here and, you know, he was going to try to address it. You know, that was that was very... That was very heartening. But I think you're, you know, I think you're right. I think it's it's partly just about knowing that you're not going crazy and you're not making this up. Right. You know, you brought up the toilets. And actually, I should have said that was one of the major reactions to the book, which I hadn't been expecting because, OK, it is in the book, but it's not like a central plank of the book. But there was just this amazing reaction to the book where women just started sending me pictures of themselves standing in the queue for the toilet. And it just became this thing. Um, yeah, I love it. And, and I think the, the reason that that struck women so much was, A, it's something that we all experience fairly frequently, knowing that you're going to stand in the queue for the toilet. Like if you go out, if there's an interval, sort of priming yourself ready to yeah. run out um, so you can hope to be the first person there. But also that, you know, as you say, we just sort of accept it. We just sort of think, why why are all other women so shit? You know, I'm very quick yeah. in the toilet. What are they all doing? Yeah, why yeah, have I yeah. got to stand here? You know, we were but blaming it's also, ourselves. It's also just like a basic, it's just such a simple, easy manifestation of the problem. Like women grouped together, waiting longer, being penalised for being female. It's literally that. Yeah, but I think also, I mean, I think the reason that it annoyed women so much is we're so used to blaming ourselves and also having some man say, yeah, what are you all doing there? Why do you take so long? Why are you all going in pairs? And then to discover that actually it's nothing to do with there being something wrong with us. It's to do with the fact that there are not enough toilets for women. And this is a systematic design flaw that I think made women so angry because it made them realise that this thing that we've always thought our oh, women are just bit shit that's why we're queuing and actually it turns out it's sexist design I think that that's that's why it got people so exercised hey it's Danny Pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One of the other things I couldn't help thinking about as reading the book, especially the parts on transport and town planning, was the Sarah Everard and Sabina Nessa recently, their murders, and just kind of seeing their actions through the prism of the data that you were giving. How were you reading about their experiences, having done the research that you've done and and kind of knowing about what women have to go through in terms of transport and sexual violence? You know, I think like most women, I was just incredibly angry and upset because we've all been there. We've all been there walking down a dark street, feeling vulnerable, wondering whether the guy who's behind us is going to be the guy who's going to rape and kill us. And I think that's why there was this visceral reaction to what happened to them, because it was all these things that we've worried about every single time we walk home in the dark actually happening. And it also made me angry because it it being this manifestation of how the public space is not designed with women's safety in mind and it isn't seen as an important factor in design to give women equal access to public space as with men. One of the things that I always think about that frustrates me is the issue of lighting and councils turning off street lighting. And obviously that wouldn't actually have affected what happened to to Sarah Everard. But I think it's a really interesting and instructive example of how simplistically we sometimes think about the data. So councils will argue that turning off street lighting doesn't actually make violence rates increase. But they're not thinking about how many women are simply not going out (laughs) when it's too dark. How many women are not accessing those spaces when it's too dark and the effect it has on women's mobility. Talking about the different ways that data is taken, one of the things, like just going back to Sabina and Sarah real quick, one of the things that I found really, really powerful when the news of their deaths broke out was this reaction, this huge collective grief from women all over the UK and how everyone started to tell their stories. So everyone started to tell their own personal stories of sexual harassment. I had a conversation with my two best girlfriends and found out stuff that happened to them when they were teenagers that I had no idea about. I kind of looked back at my life. Everyone looked back at their life and thought, actually, that happened and that was awful. And I just took it for granted. It's that whole thing. So all of this was coming out in public and everyone was saying the same thing. If every every woman has had at least kind of one experience of sexual harassment or sexual abuse, how is this the case that we're only discovering this now by talking to each other? And I I wondered about data with that respect. Like, has there ever been any serious data about sexual harassment in that regard? And will there be now, do you think, post this news of their death? So there is a huge data gap when it comes to sexual harassment against women in public spaces. 
And that is partly because women don't report it. And the reason women don't report it is because it's not clear how to report it and women know that they won't necessarily be taken seriously. So when research has been done on this, what is found is, you know, 80, 90 percent of women have experienced sexual harassment on public transport and around 80 to 90 percent of them never reported it. That's insane. That's mad. Yes. And, and but more than that, the problem is that, again, it's this question of, well, we don't have the data, therefore the problem doesn't exist. And so what you have is public transport authorities saying, oh, well, you know, there isn't a problem or police saying, oh, well, there isn't a problem because look at our data. It says that the rates are very low. So that is a huge issue. Whether or not it will change, you know, I, I really hope that it will. Um, but I don't know. Do you see a solution? Like, can you see, could you see something in yeah, your head? Like a kind of pie like, in the sky? What would that look like? Well, I mean, one of the things that got me really annoyed was um, I was reading this this report by this um, transport planner in, in the States um, who was trying to assess how public transport authorities were handling violence against women on their transport networks. And she found that basically they weren't doing anything. But she mentioned in this kind of throwaway comment how much transport had changed as a result of 9-11. So everything changed. You know, suddenly everyone was being checked all the time. You had announcements being made all the time on platforms. If you see anything suspicious, we had massive poster campaigns. Now, obviously, terrorist atrocities are terrible and people die and we should try to prevent them. But they are so much rarer than the continual violence, including rape and all sorts of, you know, really serious violations that happen to women every single day. And that where's the poster campaign? Where's the continual announcements? Where is the constant monitoring? It doesn't exist. So it really, the reason I think that's a really useful analogy is because It shows that it's a question of priorities. And despite the fact that a woman is far more likely to be raped than to be caught up in uh, an act of terrorism, the amount of resources that we put into trying to prevent this relatively rare occurrence compared to this daily occurrence is extremely telling. And the reason I'm slightly, you know, I feel unable to sort of say, yeah, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to change now. This terrible thing has happened and it's going to change. It's, terrible things have happened before and we haven't made the changes that are needed. And particularly, you know, I'm thinking about how the Metropolitan Police are reacting to what happened to right. Sarah Everard. And what are they doing? They are trying to distance themselves from the fact that the perpetrator was a police officer by calling him a former police officer, an ex-police officer, by telling women how they're introducing this new thing that you can call up to verify that he is a police officer, none of which would have helped. And they're doing nothing to address the clear institutional misogyny that is in their ranks. You know, it's just very, very clear that they have a systemic problem. So that makes me feel less confident that things are going to change. You know, I hope, I hope that I obviously I hope that they will. And, and, you know, you asked what would be my dream scenario. Well, my dream scenario would be that we treat it as seriously as we treat terrorism and do all the things that we do for terrorism. And, you know, let's, let's bear in mind 
the link between, for example, domestic violence and terrorism, the number of terrorists who it transpires have been beating their wives, beating their mothers. You know, if we took violence against women as seriously as we took terrorism, that would also benefit <laughs> the prevention of terrorism. But we just don't we just don't take it as seriously because, oh, well, it's just it's just women and it doesn't matter as much. And I I'm sure that people who listen to me say that will say that's ridiculous. No one thinks women don't matter as much. But if you look actually at the way that we systematically are treating women, that is the message that is presented. And so while I don't think that anyone actively thinks, oh, well, it's just women, it doesn't matter as much. I do think that it somehow does come back to this idea of default male and men being somehow more representative of humanity and therefore the things that affect them are more important. And so terrorism affects men as well as women and therefore it's more important. Rape really only affects women and so it's therefore a kind of niche concern. Hmm. What, what, I mean... I'm going to ask you the most impossible question, Caroline. But what changes can be made systematically to end discrimination against women in our society? <laughs> just, I mean, just, just a little question. How do we end patriarchy? Thanks for asking yeah, that. No, honestly, I think. I mean, I think it's it's it. Sometimes even just talking about it and trying to see like a pie in the sky situation is helpful, isn't it? Otherwise it's all too overwhelming. So inevitably my answer starts with we collect the data because it has to start with the evidence. And if we don't have the evidence, we don't know how to allocate our resources efficiently. We don't know what works and what doesn't. We don't know where the serious problems are. And that is actually the thing we have to solve first of all, because we don't have the answers to all those questions. So until we are collecting accurate and adequate data on women as well as men, discrimination against women will not stop. Because the way we do things at the moment, if they're not evidence-based, they are geared towards men. Partly because just historically, men have been making the rules and they didn't make the, the rules willfully to exclude women. They made the rules in a way that made sense to them, in a way that made sense based on their bodies and their lives. They weren't, you know, basing them on data. Like one of the, this is, a, a, again, a massive deviation from, um, from violence against women. But the example that I kind of opened the book with is about snow clearing in Sweden. Right. And, you know, I love this story because it sounds so ridiculous, the idea that snow clearing could be sexist. Come on, are you kidding me? But the reason that snow clearing discriminates against women is because men and women on average have different travel patterns because women are combining their unpaid work with their paid work and they're more likely to use public transport. And the order in which the roads are cleared privileges the type of travel that men do, which is basically the daily commute in a car. Mm -hmm. um, and when Sweden decided to, well, this town in, in Karlskoga decided to reverse the order in which they cleared the roads. So they did the local roads and pavements first. You know, they massively reduced um, admissions to accident emergency and saved themselves three times the cost of the winter road maintenance in their healthcare bill. The reason I've brought up that example is because the order in which they cleared the roads was never, you know, a data-led decision. It was just the way it had always been done. And it had been done that way because 
the men who made those rules were doing that kind of travel and they just sort of assumed it would work for everyone else. Like that's not a malicious thing. That's a perfectly rational way to approach the world, but it's not an effective way to govern the world. An effective way to govern the world is to accurately collect data on how the world actually is and then design policies around that. And we're just not good enough at doing that yet. What drives you forward? You're clearly not a defeatist, as depressing as a lot of your job is finding this data and kind of revealing it to the world. What what makes you want to act on the data that you're finding? Because it just annoys me. (laughs) Things things done irrationally and badly just irritate me. And I just think, why are you doing it that way? That's just so stupid. Um, (laughs) So it's partly that. It's just sort of, I can't. One of my friends said my tombstone will read, couldn't leave well enough alone. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, you you haven't always been a feminist, have you? No, no. And, and, you know, I think that is, that is another part of it. And and it's why I wrote the book in the way that I did, you know, in this very data-led, evidence-led way is because I had my mind changed by evidence. And so I strongly believe in the power of data and evidence to change someone's mind and to change their mind fundamentally. So I went to university a bit late. I went in my mid twenties. And up until the point that I went to university, I was absolutely not a feminist. And I would would say it was a fairly important part of my identity to not be a, a feminist, that I just found feminists kind of embarrassing. I thought they made women look bad, made women look weak. I didn't need, you know, I didn't need propping up or support. I was as good as any man. And I didn't really identify with women. And I I put that down really to the culture in which I was brought up, where, you know, all the magazines were aimed that were aimed at women weren't interesting at all. They were just all about how you look. And, you know, films, big budget films, the woman was always relegated to you know, the nagging wife role who was just getting in the way of the guy who's trying to save the world. And of course, you're not identifying with her. She's incredibly annoying. You know, you're on the side of the the man who hasn't put out the bins. Of course, he's not put out the bins. He's trying to save the world. You know, um, (laughs) and I think about what what I was taught at school, the history um, that I was taught was all about men. The literature that I was taught was by men and about men. So I just had this worldview where men were the protagonists of life and yeah. women were the annoying, nagging, trivial idiots who just couldn't take a joke. So obviously I didn't want to be like that. And I thought yeah. feminists are just, you know, like that. And if, and also I sort of thought if women were just a bit better and less trivial and stupid, you know, they'd be doing better in life. <laughs> and watch me, I'm going to go and be great. Um, just, uh, I just had to, there was just the minor detail of, you know, having to convince each new person that I met not to treat me like a woman, but to treat me like a human <laughs> being. Say, yeah. yeah, it's just so weird thinking back that I consciously had, I had this stress every time I met mm. someone mm. to have to prove to them I'm not like other more girls. More than a woman. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah. and how it didn't cross my mind that this is kind of fucked up. <laughs> this this yeah. might be systemic, but it didn't, you know, until I got to university and I read this book called Feminism and Linguistic Theory. And I was studying English literature, which is why I was reading that book. And there was this section on grammar and specifically the use of the generic masculine. So that is things like using he to mean he or she, man to mean humankind. 
And of course, at this point, I was rolling my eyes because obviously I'd heard that feminists get all worked up about pronouns and everyone. And I just thought, you know, it's just so stupid. It's such another example of how trivial this movement is. Women are fine and everyone knows that he means he or she. Only an absolute idiot would complain about this, that everyone knows is is actually gender neutral. And then I read in this book that studies have shown that when people read these words, they picture a man. And that absolutely blew my mind because it made me stop and realise that that's what I was doing. I was picturing men when I heard these words and I just could not believe that I'd never noticed that before. I'd never noticed all these years. And, you know, again, it's not like this had never been pointed out to me before. I'd heard these arguments before, but I didn't notice. It didn't click. And then I started realising that it wasn't just with these generic masculine words. It was with properly, supposedly gender neutral words like lawyer and doctor and Mm. politician Mm. and writer. And like, you know, all the things I might want to be. Men, 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 men. They were all men in my head. And and I just couldn't get over the fact that I'd never noticed this before. Mm. So, you know, that's kind of what set me off on this path of noticing the default male, which is why I ended up writing the book. You know, I didn't sit down at that point and think, right, I'm going to write a book about this. It was just that I was primed to notice when we treat men as if they're gender neutral. So then I went Mm. on and I studied behavioral economics and feminist economics and discovered how, you know, the entire economic system, which again, I had always thought of, and I think most people think, think of as somehow really objective and scientific. And actually, it's missing out this huge amount of data that is economically relevant. And we're making policy decisions based on half the data because we don't collect data on women's unpaid care work. Um, And I then went on and I did some work with a um, female refugee charity and there discovered how um, the UN Convention on Refugees, which again, I think is this really good example of how unintentional it is, Mm. Amazing document drawn up with the best of intentions to ensure that no person gets rendered stateless. It's much harder for a woman to be able to claim asylum because of things like, you know, having to leave the country that you're fleeing from before you can claim asylum. Women, it's much harder for women to be able to uh, travel legally, to get a visa, you know, because they're less likely to work. The, The reasons that you can give for saying why you're being persecuted are really geared to the reasons that men tend to be persecuted rather than women. Mm. So, for example, you know, sex and gender isn't on the list of reasons that you can give. So I was just sort of noticing all these ways that the world thinks of men as if they're gender neutral and uses their experiences as gender neutral, which is ultimately what led me to writing the book because, you know, I just felt like I was going crazy. But to go back to your original question, one of the things that really does drive me is that I believe that you can change people's minds because I have that experience of having my own mind changed in an absolutely fundamental way. And I went from being an avowed anti-feminist who hated feminists to being someone who won't shut up about feminism. (laughs) You know, I'm like the most annoying evangelical (laughs) religious person, except my religion is feminism. You've gone on to affect very tangible change when it comes to the banknotes, the statues, you know, the, these big tangible achievements of, of your activism. And I wanted to ask you about the kind of putting yourself out in public as this 
annoying person you call yourself, you know, the, the backlash, the inevitable backlash that comes with being a vocal and visible woman talking about the invisibility of women. How has that journey been for you? Um, yeah, it's been difficult. And sometimes I just feel very tired and like I can't cope with it. And then sometimes I feel okay, <laughs> you know, in a way, I don't know. The, the, so the reaction to the banknotes campaign was the, the worst I've ever got, which was about a month of sustained, really graphic and detailed rape and death threats. And that was really frightening. I was scared to leave my home because I didn't know who these people were. I didn't know where they were. I didn't know what they were capable of. I did know they were trying to track me down because they started finding addresses that were linked to me and tweeting them all over the internet. So that was really scary. But I haven't, I haven't had that kind of backlash since then. It's just more the kind of grinding dismissal and just the general unpleasantness that comes with being being a feminist on the internet and and that just you know that does that does get tiring and it does get difficult but also I know I'm right (laughs) 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 yeah and and what 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 brilliant like that's the thing when you have the data which you you know it's like well fuck is all like I'm right I'm right look at the fucking facts so I mean Sometimes that makes it hard because you're just like, I feel like I'm going crazy. It's even more I know frustrating. I'm right. yeah. yeah. But yeah. also, yeah. I think I am very stubborn and just, I know I'm right. Just shut the fuck up. <laughs> just- can, we, can we talk about men? I mean, I mean, obviously, I can imagine 99.99999% of this abuse that you were getting, and maybe I'm not being naive about that, was from men. How have you found men's reaction to the book and to, you know, cold hard stats and facts? And have you noticed a change in thinking in men in general towards feminism since this book has come out? Uh, Well, I mean, definitely the men who've read the book, the reaction has been fantastic. You know, I have had men telling me this is the first time I've I've understood feminism. I've understood what my female friends are banging on about. I've had women getting in touch with me telling me it was the first time their boyfriend understood what the issue was. And that is brilliant, you know, because I wrote this book. I wrote this book for everyone. You know, people say, oh, who's your who's your imagined reader? And like every writer in the world, everyone, everyone is yeah, my imagined yeah, reader. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why they even ask that question. Obviously, it's everyone. <laughs> as many people as possible, yeah. <laughs> but I did try to write this book specifically so that people who didn't already agree with me could understand and access the arguments and not immediately feel closed off and defensive. And inevitably, that's going to include quite a lot of men because it is just harder for men to understand this. Because for women, as you said, when you were reading it, you were like, fuck, I I knew that. You know, you didn't maybe know it in the forefront of your mind, but you knew it viscerally inside your body. And men, of course, don't have that because that's not how they experience the world. So I really wanted to lay it out in such a way that people who didn't have this experience would be able to understand the arguments and come on board with the arguments and want to change things. And that has been my experience of how men have reacted to the book. That's not to say every man in the world loves the book because there's a lot of men who haven't yet read the book. (laughs) And the men who haven't read the book are the men who don't react well to the book. And I, there's not really much I can do about that. Like I can't force them, you know, like clockwork orange style, (laughs) 
orange yeah, with yeah. their eyes open. And uh, so I can't re- force them to, to read the book. But I just hope that enough people read the book that the ideas percolate through society and enough people will come to get the arguments of the book. You know, and that's one of the reasons, actually, that I often start when I'm telling someone about the book, I will often start with the car crash example. Right. Because it is so stark and such a clear representation of how you start from a position of thinking men are the default human and end up with women dying and that you can't argue with it. The stats just literally are that women are 17% more likely to die in a car crash. And that is unacceptable for any human being with a heart and a soul, you know, whether they're a man or a woman. Caroline, what gives you hope in the world right now? What changes do you hope for? Well, I hope that collecting sexist aggregated data uh, will become law (laughs) in all instances. It's fucking ludicrous that it's not. How is it not law? I don't know. Um, you know, there, there are there are areas where you do have to collect sex disaggregated data, but it's very it's very rare. Um, and that's deeply frustrating. Um, my hopes are so sort of non-extreme. Like, I just want you to collect the data. Just get the data. Just get the data and act on it. Well, yeah, and act on it. And that is actually another central issue because there are areas where we have the data and we're just ignoring it. So, yes, collecting the data is the first thing. Acting on it is my less obvious step. I think that that you, I'm going to describe this terribly and you're probably not going to know what on earth I'm talking about. But there's this bit in South Park, in a South Park episode, where there's these little creatures and they have one collect socks, two question mark, three profit. And I feel a bit like that about my data plans. One collect the data, yeah. two question mark, three better policies for women. <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure what step two is because I, yeah. I'm not sure yet what the like hackers to get people to actually listen to the data and act on the data is it females is it more females in boardrooms more females at the top like surely it's that it's women thinking for women sure absolutely it is definitely partly that but even there we need a hack to get them there right because for example there is so much data showing how a diverse team whether it's in the boardroom or in a in the product design level will create better products and create more returns for companies So why aren't we doing it? Like the economic case is completely unarguable by this point. So why are we not doing all the things that we know will lead to more diversity in the workplace? Like things like transparency for hiring and and, and promotion, you know, monitoring what all the decisions that are being made, collecting data on it. (laughs) Um, All this stuff that is shown to drive diversity in the workplace is not being done. So... Even there, where there is data to show that it would be of positive benefit for companies and we have the data, it's not always being acted on. You know, again, you are, you're a data freak. You love data. You're motivated by it. It is indisputable. It's the best weapon possible. Not that this is a war, but it's like, it, it, it's, it's, it's so powerful what you've done with data. But you've also done these other things. Like, you know, you've got a woman on a banknote. You've got a female statue in Parliament Square. You have gone and kind of acted on these individual things. What can we do as listeners 
as feminists, as people who maybe aren't sure whether they're feminists, but know that the world doesn't feel fair as a woman, what can we do to make a difference? There isn't always something that you can actively do as a tangible, I'm going to do this thing and that thing's going to get changed, right? So for example, returning to the cars, there's nothing like an ordinary person can do exactly other than, you know, ask their car manufacturer, have you tested your car adequately in females? And when they say, yes, yes, our cars are absolutely as safe for women, which is what they will say, you say, well, how is that possible when an average female car crash test dummy doesn't even exist? You know, go Mm. armed with the facts and question Mm. the things that are being sold to you, whether it's by politicians, whether it's by your employer, whether it's by companies. That's really, I think, the thing that that people can, can do. Obviously, some people will be able to do more if there's anyone here who's like a researcher. I mean, sex disaggregate your data. That's what you can do. Um, If you work in HR, obviously, there are things that you can do there to ensure that the diversity of your company is improving. But just for the for the average person, I think the most important thing they can do is educate themselves by reading my wonderful book and go armed with the data when they start questioning people on are they representing women as well as men? If you start asking the questions, then, then they have to the ask cogs them. start whirring, yeah. you know, and the yeah. more people yeah. that you ask, the more this issue will spread of, why don't we know the answers to that question? And particularly, I think for, as consumers, we have a lot of power. And if enough people are asking this question of car manufacturers, or, you know, they will actually have to start addressing the fact that women are not a niche minority, that we do actually represent half the global population. Caroline, thank you so much. (laughs) This has been so brilliant, so informative, so inspiring. Knowledge is power. Read the book, ask questions, challenge people. That's the the kind of uh, conclusions of today. And yeah, I really thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much to Caroline Criado Perez. What a woman. I loved talking to her. I would really advise you and recommend you to go and get that book if you haven't got it so far. Invisible Women Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. It's something that everyone should read. Buy it for your pals for Christmas. Give it to your boyfriend. Give it to your dad, your brother, your employer, whoever you think could really benefit from getting some brilliant perspective on the real statistics of gender inequality today. Next week on the show, we're bringing you an entirely different conversation. Whereas this week focused on the macro, next week we focus on the micro when it comes to change. Zooming in on myself and one of my bestest pals, Nick Grimshaw, both of us who left Radio 1, the biggest kind of youth platform in the UK, within a month of each other back in the summer. And I thought it would be nice to check in with Grim and just have a conversation with him about how we feel being in this kind of state of flux at the moment going through big change in terms of how we feel about ourselves as people how we feel about our career in retrospect what we think we are capable of how we feel about growing older that big change that happens when you kind of take a leap of faith and move from a big job that kind of shapes your identity into the future so yeah really excited to bring you that conversation as myself and Nick Grimshaw chatting next week all about our personal changes. And until then, take care.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.